Well, I'm really excited this week. We had a chance to talk with the sound designer, supervising sound editor, Eric Norris, on his work on Spider-Man Homecoming. You know, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this new film. Thanks for having me. I was looking back, I was thinking the first time that I had a chance to talk with you, which was back when you were working uh, potentially on Watchmen, maybe in 2009 or maybe even on Man of Steel and um, in 2013. It seems like you had your hand in a handful of the superhero from different franchises and whatnot. What, what do you enjoy about working on these kind of action hero films? What is it like? I would say it's exciting. There's there's On these big action movies, there's definitely a lot of interesting opportunities for big sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's probably one of the most exciting aspects of it. Uh, this particular film was kind of fun in that there there was, from the get-go, um, w- when we were talking with uh, John Watts, the director, uh, he said that they were going for this John Hughes vibe, like mm-hmm. the, you know, the high schooler kid vibe. Yeah, Breakfast Club, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there was also this other aspect of it, of, of like fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so then we got to put in, you know, fun sounds uh, to go along with that. I'm thinking in particular... Um, there's a scene when it's like a chase scene, and in fact, they even they even reference um, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off in that chase scene. And our edict was to you know to make the sounds fun and and pop and and punctuate the whole uh, the, the moment. The first time that the audience actually sees Spider Man was in Captain America: Civil War. Were you even thinking at that time that there was going to be a you know standalone Spider-Man movie? Was that even on your radar? It was. It was certainly on my radar. I, I had didn't know whether I was going to be lucky enough to work on it, but mm-hmm. um, I certainly knew it existed. And and I and I really enjoyed Civil War. And I and I thought that he was he was a you know was a fun character. Yeah, and something I was gonna say or was thinking about was that you know that's the first time we're seeing this iteration. I mean, there's been a, definitely a few iterations. You know, you had the chance to work on uh, the Amazing Spider-Man two in 2014. So you've been, you've you've been in the world of Spider-Man. What happens when it's being represented again? Are the sounds the same? Are they different? What what was kind of the edict from your director? Like, what do you have even to reference as this is the sound of Spider-Man? Is there a template? Uh Really, uh, in, in, the edict that we got from John Watts was really that he wanted it to sound, he, he didn't want to necessarily reference the previous iterations of Spider-Man. Um, we did know that we wanted to use the sounds that they had established in the um, in Civil War, okay. especially his, um, his web shooters, mm. um, because I, I had heard that 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 on the mix on Civil War that Kevin Feig had um, really honed in, and they had spent some time making something that they all were happy with, and we wanted to make, didn't, we didn't want to have to reinvent the wheel on that. Hmm. And so I actually spoke with um, uh, Shannon Mills, who had supervised Civil War, and he graciously um, handed off those sounds to us. So again, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel with that. But as far as the other sounds. Um, we were we were kind of on our own to come up with uh, what we thought worked, and obviously, like there's you know some reoccurring characters. You have you know Tony Stark and May Parker and Happy Hogan and Little Pepper Potts at the end of the film. I mean, Iron Man obviously has a unique sound, and and you know that was kind of established, I think, as one of the first films that Marvel came out with, and that was I believe Christopher uh, Boyce who did that. So 
Did you leverage their sounds too for Iron Man? Or how does that work? Uh, we did actually. Yeah. Uh, we had reached out and to, and to Skywalker and, and got a kit of sounds from mm -hmm. for Iron Man, mm -hmm. which um, we used as the as the sort of the the basis for what we did, and then we did flesh it out. Um, mm. uh, ben Cook, one of our um, sound editors, uh, did a really fantastic job of taking what we were given and embellishing it and making it really work well. Some of the aspects of the sound are, are very, you know, iconic, like like there's like a wind-up sound uh, for like when his suit starts up and like the servo sounds. Those we didn't, we, we didn't need to riff on those too much. We had enough um, from what they gave us, mm -hmm. but we, uh, ben, ben definitely um, built on the, the jet sounds and made things nice and, and layered uh, that worked. And so it worked well for the Iron Man that we had in our film. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was thinking too, there's also like a handful of kind of voice manipulation. I, like Michael Keane's character as Vulture has an interesting sound when he has the mask on versus when he doesn't. Same thing with Spider-Man. There's kind of variations of how he sounds based on the, the tools that he's using on his suit. How do you even describe kind of navigation of you and your team of trying to come up with the right tone for a lot of the, you know, these dialogue passes. Yeah, I really can't speak too much to those because uh, that was all Kevin O'Connell's work. Um, huh. And I know that, uh, like for instance, both with uh, the uh, vulture, the sound of in Vulture's, uh, when he's in his suit yeah. of Michael Keaton's voice, and then also with Karen, which is this, this, this suit voice for, right. um, for Spider-Man's suit. I know that he did uh, treatments on those voices and then also it's definitely utilized uh, atmos okay in those to make it sound more immersive but also not pull it too far off the screen because then it, that wasn't feeling it, then it wasn't tied to the screen as much yeah what was the idea behind vulture because it's mechanical it has kind of the influence of maybe alien technology it's hard to say it has a it had a really good heavy weight to it what, what did you find was kind of the mixture of sounds to bring them to life uh the evolution of that was i had initially started doing uh sound design on that based on uh the notes that we were getting from the filmmakers and sort of up through our first temp was the sounds that that i had come up with which were we were leaning more on like fan kinds of sounds oh, because okay. those fans were so yeah. prevalent um, in the visual. And then as we uh, got further in, um, it became obvious that we needed to go in a completely different direction. And so at that point, Tony Lombardi took over mm -hmm. and he, um, he did the vulture sounds that you hear in the film. Mm. And it's various layers of jets and turbines and metallic elements that create you know what you hear and one of the the um, directions that we were given was to have a very articulated sound because there's so much sort of visual articulation and so i think he did a, a really great job in making that come to life one of the sounds that i contributed to that did make it into the final mix was um, i came up with these uh, whooshes using that melted sounds it's a reactor ensemble, a Native Instruments reactor ensemble, oh, nice. and it allows you to um, create whooshes from you know source sounds. And so I, I, I loaded it up with a bunch of um, metal like ratchet sounds, and then they sort of loop up, and then it turns that into like a buy with Doppler, uh, you know, Doppler sound, uh, the Doppler oh, nice. effect, and that kind of thing. 
And I also added, did um, like metal shing sounds into that whoosh generator. Mm. And so that was, uh, those were um, elements that ended up in the mix. How do you guys represent Spider-Man? Because obviously it's like a lot of swinging, maybe wind types or foley work. Like what's the combination of sounds for Spider-Man when he's moving? When he's moving, it's a combination of, you know, web sounds. Mm -hmm. So it's like um, like rope stretching or Kevlar squeezing, that kind of mm -hmm. sound with like wind whooshes, that, you know, that aspect as well. I mean, his real weapon is the web. Is like this web shooting. Like later in the film, you realize that there's a lot more abilities and functionality to his suit, and you start seeing like there's an explosion version or like an electric version. I hadn't really seen that stuff before. Maybe were those references from comic books, or was that just new direction for this? That is a great idea. I I think it's new. I mean, I, I it's a, that's a great question. I I think it's new, but I know I'm not sure. Um, yeah. And so. Uh, we just had to come up with that. That's not something that we could reference before. Yeah. So like uh, for like the web grenade, which was the one where it's like he shoots a grenade, it sticks to the wall. There's like a ascending beep sound and then it fires off. Yeah. Um, Steve Tickner had come up with uh, some cool sounds for that. Mm -hmm. And then like the, um, the ricochet web, which is one where it bound, it has the capability of bouncing and ricocheting right. off. Um, one of our uh, our editors, um, Martin Lopez, came up with a cool sound for that. They they specifically didn't want it to sound like a bullet ricochet. Okay, and he came up with I think a really cool sound that that doesn't sound like a ricochet, but it still feels like it's bouncing. And then what was the feedback about this little drone spider that comes out of his suit? That's something I hadn't really been familiar with either. So that was like a cool little sound. I think that was that was new as well. The edict we got from that from the get-go when we were talking with um, the director about it was that he wanted it to have, you know, a personality almost like it's a little creature like like Wally or something like sure. that. And so um, Steve Tickner had this uh, really great idea to use a like a toy that you like mm -hmm. one of those toy noisemakers that you mm -hmm. blow into. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he found one. It's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's an odd thing. It's like a, it's like a turbocharger mm -hmm. keychain, mm -hmm. but it makes, it makes a really cool sound. So he got that. And then Andy Sissel and I um, recorded it. Um, and then both of those guys also came up with a whole other like library of sounds. Um, and then that's what we used when we cut it. And it was definitely one of those things that sometimes when you have sounds, you, you create a library and it's just a matter of like, almost like cranking them in. <laughs> and, and in that particular case, it was definitely something that had to be worked um, to, to give it the, the texture and to give it the personality so that it felt like it was a little, a little being. Yeah. What were some of the record trips that you guys went on? What, what sounds did you not have? Uh, let's see. We didn't do a ton of recording. Um, we the biggest recording out we did was uh, um, Marvel has this deal with Audi, uh -huh. and there's a there's a car chase in in the film. Yeah, and uh, in the film he's uh, driving a TTS. Mm. And when we talked to Audi, they said it's it's the same motor and setup as an S3. Okay. So we took a they they let us borrow an S3 and we took it up to the desert. Uh, John Fasal came along, and then Alex Knickerbocker as well, yeah. and uh, got a, a full set on the on the uh, S3. Do you, did you even have picture lock or any reference of what you would need, or you just go wide with your recording? Uh, well, we we knew enough. Yeah, I mean, these films essentially never lock, right? right, right I mean, yeah, it's just yeah. sort of the nature of it. You know, it it, it locks 
after the printmaster, which I'm I'm exaggerating here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but these films, there's not there's no such thing as a picture lock. So, but we certainly had a good enough idea of what we needed. And then it's also, you know, it's wise whenever you have the opportunity to record a car to, you know, to be out there for 12 hours and to get absolutely yeah. everything that you can. So that's what we did. And, and yeah. we had, you know, plenty to work with. Yeah. And it's, when you are doing records, are you thinking about the fact that you need to, is it a monosos record or are you actually thinking about the immersive formats? Are you recording larger spaces? I mean, we did record like the uh, interior of the car was... Um, was 5-1, but we didn't have an opportunity to use that. My experience is you try to do the moves that you need as close as you can to what is needed in the film. Mm-hmm. But as far as panning goes, yeah, it, it makes more sense to me to mono stuff up, even though you, you have a, re- a stereo recording. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like, say, ex- exterior POV. Yeah, sure. Um, you have a stereo recording, but a lot of times we just mono it up and then pan it to follow the action because it's it's just it, it feels it's more point source. It, it ties the sound more accurately to the visual image. Hmm. And I guess there are some moments too when you do take Spider Man's point of view and you're you're kind of you're seeing it through his eyes. You have like the heads up display. And what happens when you guys are shift? Is that more on the mixer side, or are there actually differences on what you guys are designing? Uh, in this film, I'm trying to think with, with the, when we're in his POV, we, uh, within his, like with the heads up display and right, all that, yeah. it, w- it, the sounds were, were almost exclusively heads up display mm. sounds. In other words, we, we like split all of the other outside sounds and, and lowered them. So, I mean, there's that one moment when he's listening into the bad guys, like with the hype, uh, oh, hyper sure. listening right. capability, yeah, yeah. and that and that's was just um, uh, Kevin did this uh, this really cool treatment to the voices, but it was it was we weren't necessarily treating outside sounds mm-hmm. separately. It was more like they're all POV um, heads up display sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our editors, uh, Joe Imola, was the one who did a lot of the um, came up with a library of sounds for the heads up display. Oh, and nice. uh, I think you did a really good job. And, and something I guess maybe to give everyone an idea, like what was the timeline of when you find out about the project, when you're in full design mode, when you actually start getting picture? Like, can you describe a timeline for a film like this? How how, how that unrolled? I, I first got a call about working on the film over a year ago. Okay. And then it was a matter of kind of working out the crew and figuring out, you know, meeting with, um, we met with uh, Victoria Alonso, the, one of the executive producers who's one of the real forces behind Marvel. Once we had kind of got locked in that we were going to do the film, we actually started on Halloween. Okay. And we had interfaced a little bit with the cutting room prior to that and given them a few sound effects, but not really that much. Okay. And then once we got started, then we got picture such as it was, you know, almost immediately. And then we started working for like a first sort of temp mix that we had in December. So we had like a month and a half to do that first, get ready for that first temp. Mm-hmm. And in these films, the, the visual effects are constantly evolving. So one of our tasks is to come up with sounds that work for the existing visual effects. Mm-hmm knowing full well that they're going to be changing in the future. Mm-hmm. 
So, and in this particular case, and, and often in these in these large visual effects films, you know, they're working under these same crazy deadlines that we are, and we don't see the final visual effects in many cases until the very, very end. Not only this film, but I mean, all the films that you work on that are big summer tentpole films, how do you gauge your own timeline of putting milestones of like we deliverables and timelines and just working against the clock of, you know, you have a looming deliverable of having a, a film coming out, but how, how do you even describe that kind of relationship with something that's going to take you a year potentially or so, and then also just the creative work that you want to do and when everyone, like the whole circus comes together and really gets all hands on deck? Uh, I, when, I, when I'm when i thinking about it, I honestly am not thinking too far down the line. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm thinking like sort of what the next milestone is. Okay. So like when we're like when we first start working on it, I'm largely thinking about the first temp when the filmmakers really get a chance to see the sounds that we're coming up with. Mm. And then as we as we move um, through the schedule, it's this balancing act between you know they're continually changing the picture and they the cutting room continually wants you know sort of updated sounds and they want the existing sounds to be conformed, you know, to match the new picture. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 this constant balancing act between conforming, you know, matching our existing sounds with the new picture, and then also elevating the work and making new and cooler sounds to match the new and cooler visual effects that we're starting to see. And then the next big, big milestone is getting ready for pre-dubs. So that's, you know, because we want to obviously bring to the pre-dub stage as close as we can to the final. But since it's a constantly evolving beast, it is what it is. I mean, we do as best as we can with where we are, where we are you know, visually. And then as we go through the pre-dub process and then the final process, it's just you know, keeping everything in sync and you know, elevating the work. You know, what, what, what could you just describe of like, just because this film is the first time that it's, you know, it's being co-produced by Columbia Pictures and Marvel Studios, and then I guess distributed by Sony Pictures. Do you feel like there is a lot of feedback? You said you obviously you met with the producer early on of people from the Marvel team, but what is it like when there's so many eyes and ears that are looking at the work that you guys are doing? How does that does that at all influence or put added pressure to the process? Uh, I would I would say no. I think I uh, this was very much a Sony. Sony was the one who was financing it, but it was very much creatively being driven by by Marvel. Okay. Um, there, you know, Sony did have creative input. They were in, certainly involved, but we were dealing more directly with Marvel. Okay. And, and in fact, they, this, was a, this was new for everybody, and they set it up, I think, in a very smart way. Everything funneled through Marvel so that we didn't have to, we didn't get stuck in the middle getting you know, notes from mm-hmm. one camp and then counteracting notes from another camp. That just never happened because... Mm-hmm they all worked that all out when we weren't around and we just had marching orders from one set of bosses, basically. Hmm. Do you find that, that the care and attention is different because these characters are tied so closely to uh, just so many other films? I mean, this is, I think, the sixth, I'm the 16th film in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, it just seems like the, the continuity. I don't know. Are, are they even aware of that? I'm sure everybody's aware of it. But, but honestly, it feels like on pretty much every film that I work on or, or the vast majority of them, people, yeah. you know, people are passionate. We're, everybody's passionate about the work and everybody really is trying their hardest. So I, I, on this film, it didn't feel any more dramatic than on other films I've worked on because 
I've worked on a lot of films where people are just hugely <laughs> passionate about the work, you know? Mm -hmm. And this and this was no exception. I mean, and especially I know that Marvel was has a really special place in their heart for Spider-Man, so I know that they were really excited to to finally be bringing um, Spider-Man into the um, Marvel Cinematic Universe, hence the title for the film. <laughs> the homecoming, yeah. Uh, and then and yeah, shifting gears, uh, how much collaboration interaction do you have with your Foley team? Are, are, you know, I guess you've worked with Gary Hecker in the past who, who was supervising Foley. And there's a handful of Foley artists working with him, but what's your relationship with the Foley team? There is definitely collaboration. I mean, when they're, we convey to them certain specific things that we want, and then Gary will play stuff for us, and we, you know, we'll talk about it. Willard Overstreet was the Foley supervisor, so he was... He was obviously dealing with Gary the most. Mm -hmm. We would periodically come in and, and play stuff back and talk about it. So it was, it was. There's definitely collaboration there. Yeah, and I guess before we start recording, we were uh, briefly talking just about the music of Michael Giacchino. You know, the film opens with this great the 19s, I guess 60 kind of Spider-Man theme from. Is, I guess the TV show is that, is that where it's from? Absolutely, yeah. Well, how does that influence your guys' work? What happens with the, with the conversations of, with your mixers? Like, how does everything shift? Because I imagine you were probably just living in, you know, the work that you're doing with, with soul sound effects. So what happens when, when music shows up? Well, we're definitely listening to our work against like a temp music track that's carried and built on throughout the whole schedule. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have been listening to music as we're like building our effects, but it's not the final score. Right. To be perfectly honest, we didn't need to change our sound design okay. once we did hear the final score. And it was really encumbered on Kevin O'Connell and Tony Lamberti, our fantastic mixers, to you know make everything work together. Hmm. There's a lot of discussion about whether this is a music moment or if this is a you know sound effects moment, mm -hmm. and throughout the whole thing, you know, uh, one of our initial edicts from our uh, picture editor uh, Dan Liebenthal was, mm -hmm. you know, dialogue is definitely king. He did not want to need to ever lean in to try to understand the dialogue. So those were all decisions that were made on the final mixing stage. Nice. Um, yeah, and and for with your director John Watts, what is it like working with a director who I think is evidently you know this is a really big film for him, being that he 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 done a lot of smaller films. How would you describe his understanding of sound of working with you and your team? What was the collaboration like with him? He had the vision for the film, and that was obvious through the entire schedule. Yeah, and he was very tuned into the sound, and he had some really great ideas, and he also let us kind of run with the ball. <laughs> I mean, this all sounds sounds a little cliched and all, no, but yeah, it yeah. was it was really true, you know. There's this one moment that just sort of shows how tuned in he was with the sound, and that was where he came in for one of the playbacks. And before he had come in, we had moved a sound effect six frames okay. because it just felt like it worked better for yep. us, right? Because we were doing that kind of thing all the time. Mm -hmm. And when he when he he heard it back. He goes, yeah, that, that's right. But that one sound effect, it's feeling like it's a little bit late. Oh. So we advanced it three frames. And he said, no, it still feels a little bit late. And so he, we advanced it another three frames. And he goes, yeah, that's perfect. He goes <laughs> right back where it was. So he's definitely was very in tune with the sound in a, in a pretty cool way. And, and, you know, I think a lot of this, too, is like there's aspects of comedic timing. There's kind of rhythm. And, you know, everyone is looking at the edit 
Yeah, how much collaboration do you have with your editor in a film like this? Oh, it's it's a huge collaboration. I mean, yeah. it's it's whenever we were talking, I would say ninety percent of the time that we were talking with John, um, Dan Leventhal and uh, Debbie Berman were there as well and, and part of the conversation. Mm. So um, we would give sounds to Dan and to Debbie that to put into the into the Avid, mm -hmm. and then also. Early on in the schedule, there was a request to have a, a sound person in the cutting room helping out oh, with wow. like conforming and then also helping out as additional visual effects were delivered to give uh, sounds and sometimes working very quickly. Mm -hmm. And our assistant, Andy Seisel, ended up in that role and, and it's far beyond assistant work. I mean, he's he <laughs> did some... It, uh, he's. I think he won't be doing assisting work anymore. He's <laughs> graduated. A really, totally. He's a, he's a really great editor and a really uh, creative sound designer as well. He did. I don't know that you noticed, but um, when Vulture is when we're seeing sometimes when we're outside of his face, we can see, we can hear him breathe, and it's like this oh, kind yeah. of gnarly, like kind of evil breathing, and that's all Andy's work. Oh, fun. When it comes to immersive formats. You know, this film, I guess you had an Atmos, a Barco, potentially, is there, was there an IMAX mix? What's, what's the, the... Totally, yeah. yeah. How many, and, how many and mixes? You, you know that, just, just FYI, yeah. uh, uh, they liked it called, um, it's Oro, not Barco, Oro, just yes. so you know. Oro 11.1, yeah. <laughs> presented by Barco, I know. I exactly. Know. Yes. It's because I think they're a wholly owned subsidiary sure. of, of Barco, but anyway. I appreciate uh, it. We Thank actually you. did... Um, we did mixes for all the the um, the formats. Yeah. So so and 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 really, it's it was it was Kevin and Tony who were the ones who were really. I mean, that's a, a mixing thing. Yeah, sure. So I was less like front and center with that. Yeah. But we did it um, Atmos native. Okay. And so uh, you know our whole final was all Atmos. Okay. And the way we handled that was Tony did the work on the stage. We delivered stuff to the stage that had enough elements mm -hmm. so that if Tony felt like it could could go into the object tracks and be flown around the room he could do that and so but he would do he did that like on the pre-dub stage and okay. on the final stage yeah. he would he would drag the sounds cuz we're right on the cusp of the with the new software being okay. able to pan into the objects yeah. from where the where they live yeah. but right now we have to have separate object tracks okay so he would he would drag stuff down into the object tracks yeah, and, yeah. and fly fly it around the room. So we started with that, and then I'm almost positive they created a re-render of just the objects. Okay. And then that was sort of the basis for the Oro. Okay. So that because the because the Oro is is basically it's like a five one with a five zero right. on top. Yep. And and so then that re-render of what was was in the object tracks is sort of what's above you. And then they did some specific mixing, uh, flavoring to taste mm -hmm. um, once they actually heard it all together. And then we also spent time on the um, IMAX mix as well. Mm -hmm. One of the big differences with IMAX is how they handled the, um, the base management, sure. the sub. Because in like the Dolby Atmos format, it's, you know, it's like a, there's like a, a separate sub where you feed stuff right. you know, to the sub. Whereas yeah. in, in IMAX, they, I think they roll off. I don't exactly know the frequency, but mm, I'm just guessing, say seventy or something mm -hmm. like that. 
from all of the speakers gets goes to the sub. Mm. It, 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 they, there definitely needs to. There's some work that's mm. done to make it so that uh, so that like they, maybe, maybe there's not too much sub, mm-hmm. you know. And then and then we actually took our like a, one of the busier reels both to um, the IMAX, their offices where they have a beautiful IMAX theater. Sure. Listen to see how it translated there, and then we also took it to the Chinese theater mm. and to see how it translated in the Chinese theater. And uh, it's it's actually it's actually very cool. Mm. And we learned that they do some really fun stuff as far as quality control. Mm. Uh, they sweep the room, I guess, every day, mm. which is, you know, one of the things about you know, it's just sort of a normal thing in this kind of creative process. Is you you know that the that it's never going to sound as good as it does on the mixing stage <laughs> right. everywhere. Yeah. As hard as as these yeah. as as everybody tries to make theater sound, you know. Great. It's it's not necessarily you know. There's plenty of theaters that just aren't quite up to snuff, mm. and so so when you hear about these efforts that are made to make the playback of these films um, at the highest level, it, it's 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 exciting. Yeah, I've seen the film now with a paying audience, and and even though I've seen the film a hundred times, it's it's super rewarding mm. to see it with hundreds of people who are having a good time who've never seen the film before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love this whole idea of the communal aspect of seeing a film, of, of feeling the energy of a bunch of people just having a real good time. Do you find that you can get the perspective when you are in the 11th hour of mixing a film? Like, Is it a matter of checking stuff off and saying, all right, this is good, let's move on? Or is it always like like you said? It's it's you're still nothing's locked until the film is done. So well, really, uh, I guess the way I think of it is it, it's a marathon. Yeah, because we do put in tremendous hours. Yeah. you know, and I, and I guess there's analogy on in outside of work. I um I've done some really long walks. Yeah. it's it's something <laughs> that's uh, I don't even know why I've latched onto it, but I have and. And even actually during this film, at the very beginning of the film, I turned 50 and I walked for two days straight um, for 50 hours yep. to celebrate my birthday. And it's definitely an endurance thing. And so like in that particular walk, you know, I was like halfway through the second day and I was just, I was feeling really tired and I was like, how the heck am I going to walk for another 20 hours, you know? Yeah. And I, I th- the same part of me that was able to do that is the same part of me that is able to, after working for you know thirty days straight, right. to still get a we get another turnover and we have to look through it for to make sure that we've covered all the visual effects and if there is something that's different we have to put in a new sound, and yes we're exhausted yes we're tired but the thing that I always keep in my mind is that is that. If I were to let off and do anything but 100%, mm. I would be basically throwing away all of the hard work that I put in for the last however many months. Mm-hmm. Because when it gets down to it, the only pass that really matters is the last pass. Mm. You can do an amazing job for nine months, and in the tenth month, or the you know, in, in, or the and then the, the nine month plus one day. Mm-hmm. You go through and you just you're too tired and so you just do like a crappy job. What millions of people see is the crappy job. Mm-hmm. They don't see, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it, it it's it's 
it's really a, it's 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 a marathon, and it's 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 you're, all all I'm thinking about when I'm in the middle of something like that is I'm not going to let my guard down because you know I've invested too much in this, mm-hmm. and so then you know I think we all have these reserves in ourselves to to do the kind of work mm. where you know you just you just even when you're tired you just don't let up and you just keep on doing your absolute best work possible. Mm. Do you have a, a preference or an opinion about the pros and cons of being in a supervising sound editor role versus just being an editor? I mean, what's the major difference of responsibility or your wide view of the project? When you're in a supervisory capacity, there's a sense of responsibility that you don't necessarily feel or or you don't it's not your responsibility when you're cutting. You know, when you're cutting, you you're doing the best job that you can. And you certainly feel a sense of responsibility to some degree, but there's always that other layer where if you can't make it happen, yeah. it's somebody else's problem. Whereas when you're supervising, the buck stops with you. I mean, there's there's literally no option. If the client's not happy with the work, you have to dig deep and figure out something else. Yeah. And And you know what? And the truth is on every film, there is some element, some sound that you struggle with, you know? And so when you're in the supervisory capacity, you have to figure that, whatever that sort of troublesome sound is, you have to figure it out. And then there's the whole layer of dealing with people Mm -hmm. and management, and then the whole layer of dealing with budgets and the fact that, you know, even on a big film, you always get the resources that you need, but sometimes it's a struggle because it's it's the it's common with any job in the world where you want to have unlimited resources and it just doesn't exist. You know, <laughs> at what point do you know that the film is going to be enjoyable? Like, is it was it when you read a script? Is it when you see? Because are you seeing even the film in full from top to bottom? Like, when do you have a good sense of the project that you're going to work on? Like, how how late does that happen? Well, uh, oftentimes we'll have a chance to read the script ahead of time, so you have a, a sense of it. And then we'll look at, you know, as soon as we start working on the film, we get a turnover of wherever mm-hmm. the cutting room is. You know, wherever the cut is at that point, we'll, we'll get a chance to look at it. We all, I mean, I think it's normal to make judgments about the film, but the truth is it's, it's, you never know how it's going to be received. So I mean, I've worked on films that I thought were really great, mm-hmm. and and they didn't do great numbers at all, you know. And the other the other kind of thing that I I kind of think is funny is, you know, you do when you work long enough, you do work on films that aren't so good, right? Yeah, sure. And <laughs> and the thing that's funny about it is after you've worked on it for a while and you've seen it start, you know. Because we literally see these movies hundreds of times, right? You start drinking the Kool Aid. You think, yeah. well, this movie isn't so bad after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is lastly, you know, what would you say to to folks who are looking to get involved in in these types of projects when you do have opportunities to bring on new talent? Like you said, you had this assistant that obviously showed really good work and went beyond the call of duty. What is it like to bring people on who are less experienced to a big project like this? I mean, I can't imagine that the experience. You know, this experience, you know, wouldn't be the best place to learn of, of how to work at this level. I guess you could say it's in, in a way balancing your fears because, you know, these movies are n- not easy to do. So you really want to have a, a really strong team. Hmm. But at the same time, you know, you want people to put people in a position of, of rising to the occasion and, and of, of surprising you in like really positive ways. It's really rewarding when you see people who 
who take on new responsibilities and you know and are are working their way up in their careers. So you know it's it's a it's a balancing act. You you don't want to have somebody in a in 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 a uh, position where they're in over their head mm. and and will fail. But then also sometimes when people are in over their head, they thrive. You know so. It's a balancing act of of making sure that that you have a team that's going to get the job done, but then also giving people, you know, great opportunities. Nice. And I guess for you, what's the year is far from being over. So what's the rest of the year look like for uh, what's on your plate? Uh, actually, right now I don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite possible this will be the last movie of my career. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, uh, I'm just, I'm, I got my feelers out yeah. and, uh, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to a little time off. Yeah. Um, cause it's, it's been pretty intense on this, on this, uh, on this film and, yeah. and a little downtime is, is good for the soul. Do you find that when you have time off that you still are reaching for your recorder and wanting to go out and record or not really? You know, you know what I have, to, I have to say this, I'm almost a little embarrassed to admit this. Yeah. But uh, I, I personally happen to, um, I have a love for, for a visual medium as well. So I, I love photography. Yeah. And um, I find myself reaching for my camera more than I do reaching for my recorder. And that's not to say that I don't, I do record sometimes. Yeah. And I certainly sometimes am out and about and wish I had a recorder because I hear something that's like really cool and I know that it could be useful yeah. in the future. But I also love images. I love taking pictures, yeah. and and I guess I think of that as creative cross training. I think in a, in in a way that that maybe makes me a better uh, sound designer, mm. sound editor, because anything I think that allows you to remain in that creative space, but maybe in a little different place in that creative space, yeah. uh, is beneficial. Yeah, I was gonna say for anyone who wants to follow. Your, I love your Instagram photos. Your SFX Eric account. I'd say it's it's a oh, it's a. It's a fun, I'm putting a plug in only because I think it's it's a good point that you know it's not. It's great to get these other perspectives and also dig into some other aspects of things that inspire you. So it's a good healthy balance. That's what we all need in our lives. Yeah, you know it's funny. I I've struggled. You know I think all creative people struggle with you know insecurities and and feeling if they're good enough and feeling like they're a poser and all that stuff and i think I, i've i've been working more recently in my life even though i've been you know doing this for a while at, at, at just appreciating what i am good at and just sort of accepting what i am good at i'm i'm not the greatest in certain areas but i'm pretty darn good in other areas and, <laughs> yeah. and just trying to like be okay with that you know yeah so cool. Well, Eric, thank you so much again. And uh, for anyone who hasn't had a chance to uh, check out Spider-Man Homecoming, go check it out in theaters because it's one of those films. And especially if you can, go check it out in some of the immersive formats because there, there is a substantial difference in the experience. And uh, I think the one that I saw was probably a 5-1 or, or probably a 7-1. I, I can only imagine that there's a lot going on with all the flying and swinging and everything else you guys are dealing with. So thank you again. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for tuning in to my chat with Eric Norris about the sound of Spider-Man Homecoming. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. And lastly, we'd love it if you went online and gave us a rating on iTunes. If you enjoyed this talk, we'd love it if you give us five stars and leave a review. And if you or someone you know is working on an exciting project and would be interested in being featured on our podcast, 
please send us an email at info at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.